Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. As we begin to consider the book of Job, uh, we would do well to consider the question, why? Why is the book of Job here? Why bother going through it? Uh, But first, it would be helpful to consider some of the mistakes we make when we consider the book of Job. One common mistake we make when we consider Job is that we read it as a manual for suffering. We tend to go to the book of Job when we want advice on how to suffer because we so often rely on methods. You can imagine going into a Christian bookstore and grabbing a book off the shelf entitled Job, colon, and how to suffer well. Uh, The problem with that is it's only true for the first two chapters of the book. And then you have to fast forward to the very end of the book, to chapter 42. Now, there is nothing wrong with looking to Job as an example when we're suffering. But I think we would be missing the bigger picture when we make this book all about Job, his suffering, and how he responded. We would be missing the grander story of God's plan of redemption. So we should ask ourselves, is that all the book of Job is here for? Then do we only consider it when we're suffering? What if we're not suffering? Does it no longer apply to us? Is it no longer relatable? And do we still read it as the word of God written for us? Another common mistake we make is that we point others who are suffering to Job as an example of why they should be more faithful in their suffering. Uh, When we're suffering, uh, I'm sure we've all received that good bit of encouragement and comfort from others who said, hey, it could be worse. Remember Job? You could be suffering like Job. Don't be ungrateful and cheer up. Not that encouraging or comforting, is it? Now, it could be true, we may be expressing ungratefulness, but is that all we say? Remember Job? Have we made Job's suffering the standard 
And is he the one we turn to when we're suffering? Or does he foreshadow someone else? Maybe we need to read Job a little more carefully with the rest of the Bible in mind. Now this reminds me of when James mentions the steadfastness of Job. But then he immediately reminds us that it was because the Lord was compassionate and merciful to Job. So it really wasn't about Job. God was in control. So I believe when we approach this book, we tend to have our eyes focused on the wrong person. So how do we approach the book of Job? Uh, There are a few features I will mention, but we will only focus on one of them today. So what is Job about? Uh, The book of Job does not show us how to solve the problem of suffering. And it doesn't give us all the answers about our suffering, as to why we're suffering. But just like every other book in the Bible, first and foremost, uh, this book is about God. Surprise, surprise. It is about a God who is sovereign. He answers to no one and never has to explain himself. You will notice as we go on that this book never answers the question, why does Job suffer? Or more generally for us, why does the righteous suffer? Because it is about a sovereign God who does not and will not stand trial in the courts of men. But at the same time, before you think I'm being insensitive or that God is at all unloving, it is also about a personal God in a covenant relationship with man who is there with man while he suffers. So secondly, it is about the truthfulness and faithfulness of God to his people. Even when friends are nowhere to be found or they are no help at all, God is there and he keeps his promises, especially as we find them in the gospel. So his people are never without hope in this world, no matter their level of suffering. Because thirdly, this book confronts us with the reality that after man's fall into sin, there is suffering in this world and there has been a cosmic battle a spiritual warfare that has been going on since the third chapter of Genesis, and there is an enemy in this warfare. And he is trying his best to prevent God from fulfilling his promises to his people and prevent his people from placing their faith in their God. He is the accuser of God's people, and he will use their ignorance and the ignorance of others to try to confuse and mislead them. But fourthly, this book is about how that enemy is powerless in light of our God. And God will fulfill his promises to and through his chosen man, his chosen offspring, born of a woman, God will use this man to crush the attempts of Satan and prove once again 
that he keeps his promises. And lastly, this book does fall under the category of wisdom and poetry, and it contains godly wisdom with a poetic structure. So it does teach God's people how to respond to suffering and temptation, first with trust in God, then with the wisdom of God and not the wisdom of men. But today, we will focus on only one of these. We will focus on the question, who is this chosen man? Who is God's champion? First, we will see the characteristics of this man or what marks this man, what are his qualities. Secondly, his rule and dominion, speaking of his possessions, the fruits of his life, and how he orders his life. Thirdly, his piety. And lastly, who this man represents as the chosen one of God. First, the man. Who is he? In addition to that question, where and when did he live? Well, he is a man. It says there was a man. Now, this may not seem like a significant part of the passage, but it is. And you will notice uh, why as we move on through the book. Because the first chapter of Job ought to remind us of the first three chapters of Genesis and how on the sixth day of creation, God created a man. And it should remind us of the characteristics or qualities of this man. It should remind us of God's original intent for man, how man was originally created, and what this man was originally created for, both in his duties to God in heaven and to God's creation on earth. And where did he live? Now, for background, this book was written by an anonymous author, presumably during the reign of King Solomon. He is believed to be a Hebrew because of some direct uh, allusions and direct quotations to the Hebrew scriptures, word for word. You think of Psalm 8 and Psalm 107. Uh, Now, the ironic thing is that this Hebrew author is writing about a man who is not from the promised land. He is not from Canaan or Israel. Yet he will be described as one who shared in the promised blessings of God's people. He is a child of God. And he is from the land called Uz. Uz was believed to be located east of Canaan, where Edom would come to be later known to the Israelites. Lamentations 4.21 says, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom. You who dwell in the land of Uz. In the ancient Near East, it was a custom to name the land after someone who settled it. Well, who is Uz? Well, there is an Uz mentioned in two chapters in Genesis. Genesis chapter 10, verse 23, who was the grandson of Shem. And Genesis chapter 22, verse 21, who was the nephew of Abraham. And either of these or their families may have settled this land. In my opinion, it would be uh, the prior uh, from Genesis chapter 10, verse 23. And this will be helpful to us as we identify when he lived. Based on the dating, he would predate the Jewish people. 
Here are some reasons why. In Job, there is no mention nor connection between Job and the Hebrew covenants made with Abraham or Moses. And there is no mention of a temple nor tabernacle and no national sacrificial system in place. There is no Israel. Instead, he offers sacrifices on behalf of his family, which would be forbidden once the priesthood is instituted. This means he was a patriarch, a forefather of the faith. Also, if he is from Uz, Uz predates the land of Edom, which means he would predate Jacob and Esau. Esau is another name for Edom, as he and his descendants would go on to settle that land and call it by the same name. Also, look at how long Job lived for. He lived for 140 years, which means he existed many generations after the flood, but before Jacob and Esau. So this would place him at around the time of Abram, or Abraham, who was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. In fact, the Chaldeans are mentioned later in this chapter. So if you were to name some of the early big names of the patriarchs, In chronological order, it would be Noah, Job, then Abraham. Now, the meaning of his name is uncertain. It can be translated in one of two ways. It either means enemy, which we will see is a good fit, as Job would come to believe that God was treating him as such, or it could translate to, where is my father? Also, another good fit considering his sufferings and questioning God. Now that we covered his background, what marked this man? What was his character like? This verse tells us of his outward and his inward character. Then it reveals to us how that played out in everyday life with some practical observations. But first it says that he was blameless. This too was said of Noah when he was called as the head patriarch at the time. It says that he was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. He walked with God. Now this doesn't mean sinless perfection. Job was neither perfect nor sinless as he would later confess in chapters 13 and 14. But this is speaking of genuineness and sincerity. It is speaking of a constant and consistent walk with God. He was constant in his covenant obedience to God, judging by his outward conduct. And secondly, it says that his conduct was upright. He wasn't a scam artist. He wasn't pulling a fast one or trying to fool anyone with outward appearances. He didn't just have the appearance of godliness. He wasn't a hypocrite as Satan and his friends would later accuse him of being. He was a man of integrity. What he professed to believe was seen in how he lived. He was faithful to his covenant with God and he didn't treat others with injustice. In fact, in chapter 29, he reveals that he was trusted as a judge as he protected the innocent and oppressed. 
In chapter 31, he reveals that he opposed impurity, injustice, and idolatry, which leads to the next description. Thirdly, and most importantly, he feared God. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. And this is what Job possessed in his inner man. He possessed true religion in the inside. See, the fear of the Lord is in the inner man, and that is what builds the outward character. And he practiced habitual turning away from evil in his thoughts, words, and deeds. This is what it means that he feared God. He lived in light of God's wisdom and justice, as well as God's kindness and mercy. Now this takes shape in the rest of his life, as he was a steward of what God had blessed him with. So since we have covered the man, notice, secondly, his dominion. His dominion. When I say dominion, I'm speaking about what God has given him to watch over and care for, or what God has given him to steward or manage. First, he was given children. He had ten children, seven sons and three daughters. These numbers, ten, seven, and three, uh, symbolize completeness and wholeness. And you can say, at this point in the timeline of God's revelation... He was fulfilling the original creation mandates given by God to Adam and Eve. Then later also given to Noah to be fruitful and multiply. Now, whether or not that mandate is still in place today is up for debate. But I would later argue that it takes on a much more spiritual nature for new covenant believers. Nonetheless, Job is described here as one of Adam and Eve's holy and righteous seed to fulfill the original creation mandate given to our foreparents. Secondly, with the creation mandate in mind, he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. Uh, Now, the word for servants does not have in mind what we know today as chattel slavery. Because remember, Job was recognized as a man of justice defending the lowly. But again, we see, much like Adam, Job was given responsibility to exercise dominion. He was given land, livestock, and many workers to help him in his stewardship of the gifts that God had given him. So the writer summarizes Job's character by saying that he was the greatest of all people of the East. And this is not because he was just rich. Was he rich? Oh yes, he was very rich. He was comparable to the owners of Walmart or Amazon today. And you know he was rich because at this time, most farmers were nomads who lived in tents. But Job and his family lived in houses. One house for each of his children. So he was rich. Now the main reason he was the greatest of all people of the East is that he was not only rich, but also he was a man who feared God. That is what makes a rich man great. 
So to summarize, he was a whole man. He was a well-rounded man. He was not only prosperous, but also pious. He was a well-off man in a well-run world, as Christopher Ashe says. He was living in a world that mirrored what the world ought to be like. His world was comparable to the way Eden should have been like. He was the ideal man living in an ideal world. And he had a kingly stature, much like Adam, Noah, and Abraham. He was a ruler. He possessed wealth and power and exercised dominion the way Adam was called to, but more limited. See, Adam was to be globally what Job was locally. And this is what every godly man or woman aims to become in some form or fashion. He is a man of integrity, upright. He fears God and turns away from evil. He is fruitful and provides for his family. All of these characteristics is what Adam was called to be, yet he and all of mankind has failed to be. So thirdly, let us consider this man's piety in practice. At this time, the people of God were led primarily by fathers of households. That is why they were called the patriarchs. Which also means that the people of God were limited to households. No nation and no public gathering. So we notice his piety is expressed in how he led his family. First thing to notice is that he wasn't a stickler or a party pooper. right? He wasn't a legalist. He allowed his sons to throw feasts in the house of each one on his day. Now, these weren't feasts like the religious feasts that Israel would later celebrate. And these weren't immoral feasts of the pagans. But these were most likely speaking of birthdays. These are birthday parties. Thrown for each son, that's why it says, on his day. They would even invite their three single sisters to eat and drink with them. Who knows if Job didn't join in himself. So Job wasn't a control freak or a a domineering and overbearing father. He he wasn't a father who led with an iron rod. He did not provoke his children to anger, but brought them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, as Paul calls all fathers to in Ephesians 6.4. And this is what we see in the following verse. So secondly, he did not neglect his children either. You can say that he led them in, quote-unquote, what we call today family worship. As it says in Proverbs 14.26, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. Job had an anxious and godly zeal for the holiness of his family. Although Job was an ideal man, living in an ideal world, much like Adam prior to his fall. But in reality, Job lived after the fall. And he recognized the reality of sin. He perceived that the root of sin lies in the heart of all man. His children may have lived righteous and upright lives by outward appearances, yet they were still sinners in need of their sins to be atoned for. 
He would say of them, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts, meaning renouncing God altogether. So when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send or summon his children like a prophet. He would call them and consecrate them. Like a good father and shepherd, he kept watch over their souls. He called them to reflect over the state of their hearts and repent. And they were to be there with him for what he does next. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all, like a priest. Now a burnt offering was symbolic of God's fiery anger against sinners. A burnt offering is symbolic of God's anger in hell and how his anger would be appeased by a sacrifice and the burning of an animal in the place of the sinner. And his children were to watch and say, that ought to be me in that fire. But it is not. Something else or someone else has taken my place. And they were to believe that their sins were atoned for. We're not sure how much Job knew of God's special revelation. But he knew at this point that they needed their sins atoned for. And that it can only be atoned for through a sacrifice. So he wasn't a moralist who was satisfied with the outward morality of his children. He was concerned with deeper spiritual truth, and the truth of the matter was and is that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. So we can say, based on what God has revealed to him so far, that Job believed in the coming Messiah, and he trusted in the atonement of sin through his sacrifice. So far, we have covered who Job is, his dominion, and his piety. Also, we have seen how Job was of a kingly stature in his dominion. In his piety, he was prophetic in calling his children to reckon with their sin. And he wasn't all talk, but he also offered sacrifices as a priest. Notice, he is prophet, priest, and king in his rule And he was a faithful priest offering sacrifices continually for his children. So we see by Job's example that the proper end to all of life is the worship of God. It is the worship of God. And what we should ask at this point, who does this sound like? Does it sound like any one of us? Have we lived up to the standard? How often have we fallen short of Job's standard, never mind God's standard? Now, I have been relating Job to Adam throughout the text, 
to remind us of how God originally created man and what he was created for. Adam was created upright and he was to be blameless, one who feared God and turned away from evil. He and Eve were to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. They had dominion over the creatures of the earth. Adam was to protect his wife and potential family from the serpent and lead them in the worship of God. Sounds much like Job, doesn't it? But Adam failed. Not only does he fail, but we failed. Which one of us can lay claim on the character and qualities of Job just in these first five verses? Because scripture is clear. None is righteous. No, not one. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. So we also get a sense that Job foreshadows and represents someone else who is yet to come. Someone who is greater than Adam and Job. Someone who is truly sinless and spotless. Someone who is perfectly blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil every time. Even after being tempted in the wilderness by Satan himself. He is known as the second man or second Adam. His name was Jesus. And he perfectly submitted to his father in every way. Also he would be fruitful and multiply. Many children of God as John says. To all who did receive him. Who believed in his name. He gave the right. To become children of God. Who were born not of blood. Nor of the will of the flesh. Nor of the will of man. But of God. He would be given dominion over all of God's creation, power over life and death. As Paul says, for God put all things in subjection under his feet. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, not temporal, like the dominion of men or like the dominion of Job in his day or today. All of creation, every creature and every element has been placed Under his dominion and power. No riches in the world can compare to the riches of Christ's glory. Not even Solomon's wealth. Neither Job's wealth. Nor Abraham's wealth. Can compare to Christ's riches. He would also lead his people in the worship of God. As their mediator and high priest. He is the true shepherd of his sheep. And they hear his voice. And he summons them to reflect on the state of their souls and repent. At this point, Job didn't know that he was chosen by God to suffer for his sake. But this righteous and chosen man named Jesus was also called to suffer for his sake. He came from an ideal situation, but emptied himself and his life was marked by suffering and humiliation. But its end was always in the true worship of God. He too would offer one sacrifice which would be sufficient for all who place their faith in him. He would become the atonement for sin. He would give up his life on the cross for the sake of God's children in case we have cursed God in our hearts. And he didn't need to offer himself continually but once for all. Then after his time of suffering and death, on the third day he would rise from the dead 
to later ascend to sit on his heavenly throne. And now, as he sits at the right hand of God, he is our faithful high priest who forever lives to intercede for us, and he does so continually. This is who Job represents, but I believe the difference is that Jesus' sacrifice is much more efficient than Job's was for his children. It was sufficient to save Job, his children, and all of God's people throughout the coming generations. All the sacrifices in the Old Testament point forward to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So, beloved, there are some points of application to consider as we consider Job and who he points to. As he points us to Christ, remember, if you are a Christian... You have been united to Christ. Which means you receive the benefits of Christ. One of those benefits is that his righteousness becomes yours. So there's nothing else left to do in that area. Your sins have been atoned for. And you are now considered righteous even if you fall today. But also, there is a second benefit, and that is our sanctification. That we grow in holiness and righteousness in our lives. And we are expected to grow. We are expected to reflect Job's character, so long as he reflects Christ. So first, we too are called to be blameless and upright, to fear God and turn away from evil. And this must be from the heart. It is not enough to be outwardly moral. It is not enough to have outward appearances of righteousness. All the while we may have cursed God in our hearts. So we too are called to examine ourselves, as we will do here in a minute, before the Lord's Supper, and reflect upon our own condition and repent. Secondly, as Christians and as the church, We have been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ and we are called to be fruitful and multiply in our service. We are called to be good stewards of God's grace, as Peter says, each with his or her own gift. Thirdly, he has given us spiritual dominion and we exercise that dominion through prayer. Paul says that God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, right now. Not just when he returns, right now. This means that God has given us dominion here and now, even when it doesn't appear as such. Even when the world is falling apart. And one day when he returns, he also promises to crush Satan under our feet. And we will reign with him. Fourthly, heads of families, Christian families, are responsible not only for leading their families in worship, but also to cultivate the importance of the gathering, the public gathering of the worship of God as Christ leads his people in worship. And it is not only heads of families, but also those who are individual believers, single, or who live alone. Because all that we have 
and all that God has given us to steward or to manage in this life, our families, our jobs, our homes, our finances, all of these must have their proper end in the worship of God. And nothing can take the place of the worship of God. Jesus said that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Today it seems that most modern day evangelical Christians only take the first half of that. They only believe in the first half. I will worship the Father in spirit, but not in truth. They want to worship the Father the way they want to worship, in spirit, wherever they are. But they don't want to worship in truth, that is in doctrine, according to scripture. Because we cannot make up how and when we worship God. And those who question whether or not we worship God properly here, scripture calls us, it's only two times, but it's enough to to convince me that the first day of the week is when we gather. And that is the day that we hear the teaching of the word, give offerings, sing praise, and pray together. All that we have comes from him, and all that we are is going back to him one day. Because in this worship of God, We are called to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship, not conforming to the world, but being transformed by the renewal of our minds, that by testing we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And lastly, the true Christian, the truly pious the truly righteous must recognize that there is no remission of sin. There is no canceling the debt that we owe to God without the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Here we see Job as an ideal man, living in an ideal world, yet he recognized that our sins need to be atoned for. And the only way we can stand righteous before God is if someone else stands in our place, which leaves us no room to boast about our own righteousness and all the good things we have done. And the only mediator between God and man is the man, Christ Jesus, not Job. Job pointed forward to a mediator. He acted as a mediator to his children, but he is not the mediator. The only mediator is Jesus Christ. So let us now place all our faith and hope in this righteous man today. Amen.